invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17 this morning. Exodus chapter 17. I want to continue our study here in, in this book as we study what God is doing through His people and the deliverance of them from Egypt. Since this departure from Egypt, Israel has made a series of sinful choices. And the Scriptures call it testing God. That they tested God in these cities by, um, by asking or demanding for water and food. What does it mean to test the Lord? Well, let's think about what testing means in terms of how God uses testing with people. Like in Genesis chapter 22, He says that He tested Abraham. So what does it mean for God to test us? We saw last week that God tests us in the sense that He brings about difficulty in order to evaluate the quality of our character or the quality of our faith. And so we can take that definition and apply it to God. What does it mean for us to test God? It means that we question God in order to evaluate the quality of His character. Is He worthy of our service? And the way that this shows up is when we demand or expect God to do something special for us. Now, when God evaluates our character, there is no problem because He is effectively standing in judgment over us and He has every right to do so, doesn't He? Because He is our Creator, our Superior. But who are we to stand in judgment of God? We are the clay. He is the potter. And so God and His Word cannot be tested. It should not be judged. I always cringe when I hear the words to the fourth verse of the Bible stands. The Bible stands. Every test we give it for its author is divine. I apologize to those who like that song, but, but the Bible is not subject to human testing. That would be like a cookie that I just baked coming off the cooling rack and telling me that I should have added less sugar. Or that would be like a one-year-old saying to his mother that that she is not feeding him with the proper nutrients. As if the one-year-old can stand in judgment over his mother. You see, when we test something, we stand in judgment over that object. And what I'm saying is that God and His Word are not subject to testing. They will be judged by no one. I mean, think about it. How could God's character, how could God's Word ever be in doubt and require testing? You see, when someone tests God, they're not testing Him for genuine loyalty. Let's see if His character... They're actually attempting to get something out of them, out of Him, on their timetable in a, in a proportion that they want. And so really, when we test God, we actually doubt God. We're essentially asking, God, will you really provide for me? Are you capable? Are you willing to do what I want you to do? And it goes back to what I said last week. We tend to make ourselves at the center of our own universe, and we think that God exists to serve us. God does not exist to serve us. We exist to serve God. But God, as He is, is graciously helping Israel along to see that they must depend on Him. Even though they 
have these episodes of testing him. And, and the reason that he wants them to depend upon him is he wants them to know the great joy that they can experience, the rich joy and the satisfying obedience when they commit themselves to, to him, when they submit themselves to him. So let me read our passage this morning. It's in Exodus chapter 17. I'll read the whole chapter beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by, the, by stages from the wilderness of Sin, or Sinai, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial, and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. In Exodus chapter 17 this morning, we're going to see that delayed and intermittent provisions are God's loving ways of showing us that we need to depend upon Him. Delayed and intermittent provisions are God's loving ways of showing us that we need to depend on Him. So, first, delayed material provision is really abundant provision. Verses 1-7. through seven, Delayed material provision is really abundant provision by God. You see, when we have delayed provision, we tend to treat it as no provision. And that's why you have Israel in verse 7 saying, Is God among us or not? Are you going to provide for us or not? When, when we are missing something, when something's been taken from us, we see that as God not providing for us. And what God is teaching, I believe, <clears throat> is that really is His abundant provision. I'll show you how that's connected here in just a second. But verses 1-4 through four <clears throat> is delayed material provision. 
Three days after crossing the Red Sea, Israel came to Marah, and there was no drinkable water there. God miraculously provided, though, and they set out from there, and a few days later, they're without food. And you remember what God does? We saw last week, He brings the, the quail in the evening that they can eat, and then in the morning, what's there for them on the ground? It's the manna. And they will continually be eating of this manna. So God is abundantly providing for them. Now, we come to chapter 17, verse 1, and a few more weeks have elapsed. And now they find themselves in Rephidim, which is in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. And again, look at the end of the verse, and there was no water for the people to drink. Do you know who brought them there? Do you know who led them to a place where they would be without provision? Was it some kind of 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 uh, coincidence or was it some kind of mistake, accident that they showed up to a place where there was no water? No. How are they being led around in the wilderness? From the time that they come out of Egypt, how are they being led? By what? By the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, which is a representation or a manifestation of whom? God Himself. It's as if they are following in a single file line behind God Himself and He leads them to a place where there's no provision. There's no water here. So what does Israel do when the faucet of God's material provision has been turned off? Look at verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Their response to this lack of material provision is quarreling against Moses. Now look back to chapter 15, verse 24, because I want you to notice that their frustration has escalated. Notice chapter 15, verse 24, when they don't have water there, so the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? A couple things I want you to notice there. One, they grumbled. Okay, This word here in chapter 17, verse 2, is a stronger word. It is quarrel. Okay, the second thing I want you to notice in chapter 15, verse 24, is that they ask a question. What shall we drink? In chapter 17, verse 2, what did they do? Not ask a question, but they make a demand. Give us something to drink. You see how it's escalating here? Now this word, and you can turn back to chapter 17, verse 2. This word quarreled is, as I said, a much stronger word than grumbled. And I think that's a, a, a decent translation in the New American Standard that, we're, that I'm reading from. Okay, it shows that there is a severity of anger there, that they are starting to get to a boiling point. But usually when we think of quarreling, we think of how many people in a quarrel? Right, it takes two to tango. You think of at least two people. But I think that's that's a different. Uh, I, I think the word here is probably better translated as protested because it's actually the people against Moses. Moses didn't do anything. He's leading them, as God is leading him. And so, so maybe it would be better to think of it this way. Therefore, the people protested against Moses. Moses, give us something to drink. Now, this is going to reach a culmination when we get to Numbers and, and, and see that they, they demand that Moses give them a leader to take them back to Egypt. We're done with you. We don't want this anymore. We don't want a lack of provision. We want 
to be provided for. And we were provided for when we were in slavery in Egypt. So they protest against Moses and his ability to lead. We know that that these people are extremely angry for several reasons. One, as I mentioned before, that they demand water to drink instead of asking for it. Moses rightly recognizes that this is serious. Look at the end of the verse. Why do you quarrel with me? He noticed, he recognizes this quarrel is not against him, but against, or this protest is against whom? Against the Lord. Why do you test or protest against the Lord? You're testing him. You're doubting him. Moses recognizes that what was ultimately at stake was not a lack of water or a lack of confidence in Moses' leadership. It was ultimately that they didn't trust God. And then the third reason we know that it's escalated is because they would rather be enslaved in Egypt than to be out in the wilderness and free. Well, Moses is worn out by their complaints. In verse 4, Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do to this people or for this people? A little more and they will stone me. Now, it's unclear if if they really were going to take to him, listen, you're a leader who's leading us into a place of danger, destruction. We and all of our animals are going to die, and so you need to die. Could be that their anger had uh, had risen to that kind of a level. But but I think Moses is just frustrated, and he's he's not uh, embellishing, but he's he's using hyperbole here. He, he's just tired of their complaining. Right, three days after the Red Sea, we don't have any water. And then a few days later, we don't have any food. God provides for them in a miraculous way and they come a couple weeks later and, and they don't have water again and they're blaming it on him. Blaming it on him. <clears throat> and he doesn't handle the protest the same way that he handled it in chapter 15 and chapter 16. In chapter 16, when they protested against him, when they complained, when they grumbled, he reminded them that God is the provider. That God is the one who cares for them. But here, instead of talking to them and reminding them, encouraging them. He goes right to God and complains, takes their complaint to God. He seems to be more concerned about his own comfort than God's, God's agenda here. And so I think Moses is starting to get frustrated as he leads these people through the wilderness. And as I said, it's going to lead to a culmination where he, Moses just strikes the rock twice. Remember later when God says, speak to the rock. Moses strikes it twice, and that, that is the reason Moses does not, is not allowed to enter the promised land. So when we have delayed or no provision, we see that, when we have delayed provision, we see that as no provision. God's not providing for me. But verses 5 through 7, delayed provision is really abundant provision. Delayed provision is really abundant provision. God here provides for Israel by means of His appointed leader in verse 5. The Lord said, Pass before the people. So He says, Moses, take your staff, walk before them, let them know that you still are the leader. Let them know that I'm the one who's, who's putting you there. As He had been throughout the Exodus events, Moses was the man through whom God would lead them. And in verse 6, God provides in a clearly visible and extraordinary way so that Israel will know that water comes from God. Do you notice what he doesn't do? He doesn't say, start searching. Start digging some wells. See if you can get your own water. And if they did that, who would get the glory for something like that, right? 
But instead, God provides for them in a clearly visible way so that they know it comes from God and in a way that's extraordinary so that they know that it is God who is providing. And He has Moses strike the rock so that they see that when He strikes the rock with the staff, that the water comes out so that they can't boast in themselves and they know that God is providing. That's why it's abundant provision. See, when, when God takes things away from us or brings us to a place where we're lacking it's actually God abundantly providing for us because He either is going to use that to show that we need to depend upon Him or He's actually showing us in the loss or what is, is missing that we need to depend upon Him. And in verse 7, this event was so significant that Moses named the place Massa and Meribah. It's not two places that they're at here. This is one place with two names. And if you look in the margin of your Bible, you'll see that it has to do with their testing of God. It means test and quarrel. Test and protest, we could say. And, and these, whenever they would be reminded about this specific location, they would be reminded of what they did there and what God did for them so that they would turn back to God and, and be reminded of His great provision for them. So delayed provision is really abundant provision. I'll try to tie that together a little bit more as we conclude as well. But, but the second thing that we need to see is in verses 8 through 16, intermittent provision is really abundant provision. You know what I mean by intermittent? It means on and off, right? You get some provision and off and then on. And, then, and that's what's happening here in this, this battle that's going to take place between Israel and the Amalekites. That they would win as long as as Moses' hands are raised and they would be losing when his hands were down. Since the time of the Exodus, and certainly since the crossing of the Red Sea for Israel, it, it has felt for them as if God is far away because the provision has been intermittent. We have water, we don't have water. We have food, we don't have food. And now we don't have water again. And they've had to face the challenge of hunger and thirst. And would God provide for them? But now, how would they react with the challenge of war. This is not the challenge of hunger and thirst. This is, is serious and more imminently serious because they're going to have to face a battle. The question is not, will God provide food and water for them, but will He provide victory for them? And what you need to know about Amalek or the Amalekites is that Amalek was the grandson of Esau. And so they would have grown up knowing the stories about the conflict between Jacob and Esau, and they would know about the conflict that still exists between uh, Esau, Esau's people, and and Jacob's people. And so these Amalekites are several generations removed from Esau, but they still come from that line. And these people specifically like to prey on the weak, and they saw Israel as a sitting duck. Right? They were ill-equipped to be in battle. It was a multitude of people, but they were not in a position to, to do battle. In verse 9, Moses says to Joshua, choose men to fight against Amalek. Now Joshua is tasked with round, rounding up these able-bodied men who can fight for Israel. And, and we need to understand that these people were not equipped to fight. They'd never been trained in battle. Neither had their fathers nor their grandfathers. What kind of people were they? Right, the last 430 years, they were farmers in Egypt. 
And so Joshua probably got the men to use makeshift weapons. You know that garden hoe that you use to destroy and attack those weeds? Okay. Pretend like these people are the weeds and use that garden hoe to destroy them. I mean, this is going to be very uh, difficult for the people of Israel to engage in this battle. And yet, God is the one who grants military provision, victory in this case, through the visible means of Moses' raised hands, verses 9 to 13. God, provi- God grants victory through the visible means of Moses' raised hands. Moses says, I'm going to station myself on the top of the hill with this staff. What was the staff of God? There's nothing magical about it. There's nothing that's, that, that, that brings about some special thing just because of the way it was made or because of the powers that it can and draw from. No, it, it's, it's simply the thing that God used to display His power through Moses. Right? It would be the, the staff that He used to, bring, to turn the water of the Nile into blood. It would be the same staff that He used to bring the locusts. It would be the same staff that He raised up over the Red Sea and caused it to part. Here God would use this same staff to bring about military victory. And what He's doing for Israel is He's creating for them a banner. That's what Moses is going to call this place. Or he's going to set up an altar and say, the Lord is my banner. A banner was just a a stick or a pole and they would have a color at the top so that the people in battle would know what to do at that certain time. If they saw a color, they were to do something. And so what Moses is or what God is showing through this staff is that the Lord is the banner. He's the one that's providing the victory. And so uh, Moses raises his hands. And as he raises his hands, as long as his hands are raised, apparently with his staff in one of these hands, or maybe in both, uh, then they would win. Now, some people interpret this passage and say, well, as long as Moses is praying. And the reason they do that is because generally... And the key word is generally in the Scriptures. Whenever someone raises their hands in the Scripture, they're praying. But that's only generally because there are some cases in which they are not. And so they say, well, Moses is praying, so as long as he's praying, depending on God, there's a good Sunday school story there somewhere, and they use that. But the text does not indicate that Moses was praying on the top of the hill. The point was that God was using this staff as a sign, a banner for them to see that he was going to bring about the victory as long as his banner was raised. Israel should not have learned from this experience that that raising hands brings victory. No, what they should have learned is that God brings the victory. That God was the one fighting for them. And and we know that, that it's nothing in Moses or in his staff alone that, that, that brings about the great strength of the army, Right? In fact, Moses can't even keep his arms up. And we might think, well, maybe he's, you know, he's really old. He was actually 120. But we wouldn't be able to do the, the, that either, right? If we had to hold up our arms over our head until dusk, I don't think we could do it. And so he sits on a, uh, a stone and Aaron and her come over and, and help hold his arms up. And as long as his arms are held up, then they, have, uh, then they prevail in the battle. And so here's what Israel should have learned from this. Okay? Number one, Moses is our leader. Moses is our leader. As long as he's raising the staff, we're winning. Number two, Moses is weak. Right? He can't keep his hands up on his own. And then number three, God is the one who's bringing about the victory. Right? God's the one who's bringing 
to victory. And so, verse 13, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And in order to commemorate this victory, Moses records it so that Joshua would remember it for the conquest, conquest period specifically, but also that Israel, from generation to generation, would not forget that the Lord was the one who fought at Amalek or against Amalek here in this region of Sinai. That every battle that they were going to be a part of, if victory was going to come, it was going to come from God. So delayed provision, like the water, and the intermittent provisions are actually God's loving ways of showing us that we need to depend on Him. God's way of showing us that we need to depend on Him. So what is it in your life that is missing? Feel like God's not providing for you. Feel like God's providing for you, but it's on and off. Could it be that God's teaching you to depend upon Him and that really this is abundant provision? That God is actually giving you something better than having those material things? What do you do when your health is failing? What do you do when your home is in foreclosure, when your marriage is crumbling? What do you do when the creditors are calling or when you're on the brink of losing your job? How do you respond when the faucet of God's material provision is shut off? We need to learn at least two things from this passage this morning. Number one, we need God to remind us of our dependence on Him. We need God to remind us of our dependence upon Him. You see, we tend to see God's provision tied directly to His material blessings. So, as long as I have material blessings and I have enough of those, as long as my health is there, as long as my relationships are stable, then we can acknowledge that God is there. And frankly, we should when those times when those times have come. But, but what we don't like is when we don't get those material blessings. We don't like intermittent or delayed provision. We don't like when God withholds material things that we want. Or when He withholds material things that we think we need. Even something like a necessity like water. And yet, when material provisions are delayed or missing altogether for us as Christians, that is actually, listen to this, a sign of God's grace. Because God is lovingly showing us that we need to depend upon Him. So Christian, when you are lacking, when you are missing something, when you are not seemingly provided for, God is actually teaching you to depend upon Him. I mean, think about it. If God is working to make us into the image of His Son, we know that that's the case because of Romans chapter 8. If God is doing that, which is more helpful for us as believers 
who are prone to wander. Is it more helpful for us to be abundantly supplied materially all the time without delay? Or is it more helpful for us to have occasional need? You see, when we look at it from God's perspective, what is God trying to do here? God is trying to make me into the image of His Son. And sometimes taking things away is the way that He does that. Think about it. Think about how Jesus worked with His disciples. Did He ever allow His disciples to go without something that they needed? Did He ever bring them to a place where they were in desperation? Remember after He finished teaching one time in the Gospel of Mark? He says He sent them out on the water. And what happened when they went out of the water? A great storm came, and you have fishermen on the boat who know the, the, the severity of these storms, and they say, we're going to die. Why would Jesus lead them into a place where they were going to be without what they needed? And the point is, is that Jesus was teaching them to depend upon Him. And that was actually what was best for them, Right? What about the feeding of the 5,000? He's teaching them all day, and they're hungry. And Jesus says, you feed them. See, Jesus totally could have just taken that situation and said, I'm going to take care of this, as He eventually did. But He wanted to show them that they were in a place where they needed something. And the main thing that they needed was to depend upon Him. And you know, as Jesus allowed them to walk into places of desperation, it actually trained them for what they would do later, which is build Christ's church. It's no wonder that they were spiritually equipped to face the severest forms of opposition in the book of Acts because Christ had already equipped them by taking them through the deep waters of testing. The deep waters of delayed and intermittent provision. You see, Christian, even when we are missing something, God is still abundantly providing. Remember what we saw last week? God often withholds good things from us in order to give us something spiritually better. We could say it another way. God often brings about difficulty. God often leads us into trials so that He can give us something spiritually better. Something that's more spiritually enriching. There is nothing that God can do for you as a Christian that is more loving to you than to get you to depend upon Him. And if that means removing your grip from the things that you think you need in this life, then that is a mercy of God. Do you see? We need God to remind us of our dependence upon Him. Secondly, we need to recognize the seriousness of putting God to the test. We need to recognize the seriousness of putting God to the test. This sin that Israel committed here in other places in Exodus was a serious sin. And the reason I know that is because this one specifically in Exodus 17 is repeated ten times in the Old Testament and one time in the New Testament. That is, it's a reminder to Israel for generation to follow that this was a serious sin against God. Look back at verse 7 again because notice what they actually are doing. doing. 
Verse 7, Moses named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Have you ever asked that question? Is God even there? Maybe not out loud, right? We're too spiritual to do that. But, but have you ever thought it? God, where are you? I'm ashamed to admit that I have thought that very question. And if God, God, if you were here, things would be different. Where are you, God? You see, it's one thing for us to say, I'm struggling here, and God, if you don't intervene soon, I don't know how I'm going to be able to make it. That's one thing. But to say, God, you're not here, is to test God. It's to stand in judgment over God. To say, God, you're not true to your promise. It's like asking a runner who is six miles into his marathon, you know, do, do you intend to run the race? Hey, what an insult. I am running the race. This is like us when we ask God, where are you? God the whole time is working on our behalf. He's right there. Are you going to run the marathon? I am running. Or it's like a child or a spouse asking a mother who's working hard in the kitchen to get the meal ready. Are you going to make dinner tonight? What do you think I'm doing? I'm making dinner right now. It's an insult for us to ask the mother who's doing this. And when we question the presence of God while defying clear evidences that He exists, we challenge God in a way that He cannot ignore. For Israel, God's presence was clearly among, us, among them. And for them to say, where are you, God, was an insult, wasn't it? I mean, it's simply amazing that God has been providing for them all along the way. I mean, even before, they were without water and God provided abundantly. And God has been leading them from their homes to where they are now through a visible expression of Himself with this pillar of cloud in front of them. And think about this. What kind of food did they fill their stomachs with that very morning in chapter 17 that they complained about having no water? What kind of food? The manna that God was miraculously providing from heaven. It's hard for us to imagine that Israel would miss this. That God is there. But if we think about our own lives, it's not that alarming at all. Right? I mean, let's be honest. Do we ever question God's presence? Do we ever wonder if God has abandoned us? Because we're looking at our circumstances and our circumstances are telling us that He is far away. Or at very best, He is unconcerned. But is that a fair assessment? For Israel, it was not a fair assessment. It was obvious. God was there. He was providing. They had clear evidence that God was there. The pillar of cloud, the manna, the previous provision by God, the great deliverance from Egypt. But what about us? I mean, God's not providing bread from heaven for us to eat. Last time I checked, I had to work for my food. I had to go buy it myself. God's not providing in a miraculous way. 
He's not leading me through life with a pillar of cloud. I don't know what to do in the next step of life. It would be nice to have a cloud. And I don't recall Him saving me from the destruction of the Red Sea. So what evidence do we have today that God is among us? And I would say the three evidence come to mind. Number one, the experience of previous provision. The experience of previous provision. Have you seen God provide for you in a great way? Has He taken you out of slavery from sin and brought you into the kingdom of light? Then here's what Paul says in Romans 8.32. How He who did not spare His own Son, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Here's the, here's the, uh, the thought. From greater to lesser, if He did the greater thing, delivering you from the bondage of sin and putting you into His family, will He not also provide for you in all areas of life? It doesn't mean that you're always going to have what you think you want or you think you need. What about the food that you ate this morning? What about the clothes that you're wearing or the shelter under which you live? What about your family? What do you have that you did not receive from God? Okay? Take out a piece of paper and write down all the things that you have that you didn't receive from God. You see, God has abundantly provided for us. So we have an experience of previous provision even this morning in the food that we took into our bodies. The second evidence that God is among us is His Word. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 116. Sustain me according to your word that I may live. And do not let me ashamed be ashamed of my hope. Sustain me according to your word. We live because of God's word. We don't live by bread alone. That's why we can be without food. We can be without water, without even the necessities of life, and still have a meaningful existence. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We live the most important reason for our existence. The source of our life is God's Word. So there's another evidence that God is among us. The third is the promise of the presence of the triune God. Have you ever considered that the triune God has promised to be with you? God the Father, Hebrews 13.5 God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Romans 8.31 If God is for us, who can be against us? The implied answer is no one. God is for us. Okay, So we have the promise of God's presence. We also have the promise of the Son's presence in Matthew 28.20. Right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go and make disciples. He goes on and then at the end he says, Behold, I am with you. Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's not talking just to the disciples there because He says to the end of the age. He's talking to you. We have the promise of God the Father always being with us. God the Son. And then Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, God the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a pledge of our inheritance, a down payment of what God is richly going to supply for us, which is His presence. The Holy Spirit's been given to us. He lives within us. He testifies with our spirits that we are the children of God. And so here's what we can say. 
about God's presence, the triune God is with us. And if the Lord is with us, who can be against us? What can man do to us? And do you know what's interesting about these promises that God gives to us as Christians today? God never promised that you would avoid trouble. But God is promising something far better. He's promising that when trouble comes and when it gets more severe, God may not remove your trouble. He may actually increase it like He did with Job. But know this. He is with you. And He will always be with you to the end. No matter how long the trouble lasts. No matter how difficult it becomes. What more evidence do we need that God is with us? How can we question God's presence? Maybe it's a sign or a miracle or vision that we need. Jesus said, This evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but a sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Matthew 16.4 Our problem is that God's presence and God's promise and His ongoing provision are simply not enough for us. We want control too. We want to know the end from the beginning. We want to know how this is all going to turn out. We want clear and ongoing manifestations of God. And yet, when we test Him in this way, God responds, I think, like a mother who's cooking the evening meal. How can you ask me where I am in your difficulty. How can you ask me that? Look at all the signs around you that I am here and that I care. Even at, that, at this moment, when you stand there unsatisfied, I am working for you. Friends, the Lord is our banner. He is the one to whom we look for everything in life, even when our material possessions are not there when our health is weak, when our relationships are crumbling, when our possessions are even completely gone, we see the Lord God on high. And He is fighting for us. And He's working out everything in this life to get us to a place where we depend upon Him. And that is the, the best spiritual good that can come to us. Aren't you thankful? for His presence and His ongoing provision, for His promise to always be with you. Aren't you thankful that He is redirecting you to a place where you can see that you need Him? Why don't you stand with me? We're going to take some time to pray to God directly. Stand, please. We're going to take the next 30 seconds to thank God for His abundant provision in our life and His presence. And I'm going to close in prayer and we'll have a hymn. Take some time to talk to God about what you've seen this morning. Thank God for what He's done in your life and ask Him to help you as you continue to look to Him as your banner.
Father, the signs of Your presence and Your abundant provisions are all around us. We've seen You provide for us in the past. We've seen You use trouble in our life to, to teach us dependence upon You. And yet we walk through the trials of today and we question Your presence and Your care for us and we we want to apologize, Father. We want to ask for Your forgiveness. And Lord, we want to thank You that even though we do at times protest against Your rule, You are abundantly merciful. Even though that we're prone to wander, You draw us back to a pathway that leads us toward greater dependence. And Lord, so we don't ask for trials to come into our lives. We don't wish trials to come into other people's lives. But we know that whenever they do come, You are using them for Your glory and for our spiritual good. Lord, help us to see our trials properly to recognize that even when we are without, it, it brings us to a place where we trust in You more. May You change us as a result of the negative example of Israel and change us as a result of the promise of Your presence. Help us to consider that even this week. As we live for You, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.